The Ruth Page School of Dance is a platform for developing great artists and connecting them with both audiences and community. Find audition information for the school's International Dance Experience, a four-week summer intensive featuring teaching artists from all over the world, at ruthpage.org. Dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about how the dance community is participating in the Stop Asian Hate movement. We will get into what it means that dance moves have now been turned into NFTs. We will take a look at the state of live dance in New York City right now, as we're one year out from shutdowns. And then we'll have our interview with Pamela Taji, who is the executive and artistic director of Jacob's Pillow. Pam and I had this really, really wide ranging conversation about how the pillow is recovering from from multiple crises, both the pandemic and also the fire that destroyed the campus's Doris Duke Theater in November. And then about how the organization has used the lessons from this past year to plan for the return of its festival this summer, which we're so excited about. Um, But before we dive into all that, if you are not yet subscribed to this podcast, please pause the episode for a second and hit that subscribe button on your listening platform of choice. And while you're at it, if you are so moved, give us a rating and a review too, Um, because not only do we appreciate your feedback and we really, really do appreciate it, we really are listening, but your ratings and reviews also help other people discover this little podcast dance family that we've created. All right. Now let's get into our regular dance headline rundown, and Cadence, you're up first this week. All right. In some very fun news, pop icon Lizzo will host an all-new Amazon reality series searching for full-figured models and dancers to perform with her on tour, and the show is now in casting. The competition-style series, a la America's Next Top Model, will award its winners with the chance to join Lizzo on tour as a part of her Big Girls dance crew. It's like the best news to kick off (laughs) this dance headline rundown. It just sort of like... It combines everything I'm interested in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Royal Ballet has announced highlights from its upcoming 2021-22 season, anticipated to be the company's first full season since 2019. The Dante Project, a long-delayed three-act by Wayne McGregor that was meant to debut last summer, will finally premiere in October, also marking the farewell performances of beloved longtime principal Edward Watson, Ed, please don't go, we love you so much, Mm -hmm. I digress. Also in the works, another three-actor by Christopher Wielden, based on the Mexican novel Like Water for Chocolate, which is an American Ballet Theater co-commission, so we're probably going to be seeing that on the side of the pond sooner than later. Um, And a new work by Kyle Abraham, which I am always excited to hear about new work by Kyle Abraham. Yeah, yay for Kyle. It is exciting to see these two new full-lengths happening, especially the Dante Project finally happening. But... And I say this as we're recording on Equal Pay Day, it would be happier news. Yeah, Mm -hmm. if they weren't both choreographed by well-established white men. So more Kathy Marston, more Kathy Marston, and more other people too. They're out there. 
Starting Monday, March 29th, American Ballet Theater will present weekly premieres by the 2021 ABT Incubator Choreographers. This year, ABT Incubator participants adapted to pandemic circumstances by creating new work with their colleagues over Zoom and in isolated ballet bubbles. And for the next six weeks, you can catch the filmed fruits of their labor on the American Ballet Theater YouTube channel. Renowned Odissi dancer Lakshmipriya Mohapatra passed away on March 20th at age 86. She is credited as the first dancer to perform Odissi on stage and was honored with a state funeral in India. Uh, Crane's New York Business Magazine named Paul Taylor Dance Company's artistic director Michael Novak as one of its 2021 40 Under 40. The magazine's feature highlighted Novak's work to keep the 67-year-old company alive, particularly in the last 12 months, including his organization of a virtual benefit, online classes, and the online release of archival films and performances. Big congratulations to Michael and Paul Taylor American Modern Dance. And the National Dance Education Organization is advocating for continuing arts education in public K-12 schools next year, with most school districts facing budget shortfalls due to the pandemic. And we all know that has historically led to arts programs being cut from curriculums. So through the end of this month, they're collecting signatures on the Arts Are Education Pledge, which asserts that the arts are a part of a balanced education and asks signees to commit to supporting equitable access to arts instruction. You can sign as an individual individual or on behalf of your organization, it takes just a couple of minutes. Uh, you can head to artsareducation.org, sign the pledge, and check out more ways that you can get involved. And of course, we will include that link in the episode notes. According to new research from Florida State University, dancing the Argentine tango may help people with Parkinson's disease maintain balance and avoid falling. The iconic Argentine dance style emphasizes walking, balance, posture, and weight shifting, all of which factor into fall prevention. You know, it's we already know, thanks to long run, running programs like Dance for PD, that dance can be so beneficial to people who have Parkinson's. But the idea that Argentine tango specifically, like mm -hmm. its emphasis on weight shifting and on posture, may be particularly helpful. That's fascinating. Something to explore. Um, all right. So now in our first roundtable segment, we want to talk about how the dance world has responded to the Stop Asian Hate movement. In the days since the Atlanta area shooting that killed eight people, including six Asian women, there has been an outpouring of support for the Asian community on Dance World social media. And there have been new or renewed conversations about how anti-Asian bias and stereotyping are very much a problem in dance. This moment has led some Asian dancers to speak out about their own encounters with racism or violence. And we want to start by talking about one of those accounts in particular. Um, so Alex Wong, whom you might know from So You Think You Can Dance, or from Broadway, or from The Greatest Showman, or from TikTok, or all of the above, he is doing and has done everything. Last week, he posted on Instagram about his experience being attacked earlier this month in New York City. And since then, that story has been picked up by a few news outlets. As Margaret mentioned, Alex first posted on his Instagram a video about how he was recently riding his bike through Midtown in New York City when a group of younger teenagers started throwing rocks at him and hitting him in the head. He said in his post that while he physically wasn't hurt, the encounter made him question why exactly he was targeted. He had recorded the aftermath of the attack in a video diary on his phone, but had held off on sharing the video. He initially felt that he didn't want to draw attention to himself, but he says in interviews that following the mass 
mass shooting spree in Atlanta, he felt he couldn't remain silent any longer. He also said that he hopes that by sharing his story, he'll encourage others to come forward if they feel they've been targeted. In an interview said, quote, the rise in reported Asian crimes, it's partly also due to people giving others the confidence to speak up. Well, and I think it very much speaks to, he talked about this happened the first week of March and he recorded this and then didn't post it. He sat with it and he said in his post that he kind of realized like, oh, I kept myself silent. Is that sending the message that it's okay to do this to people who are Asian, Asian American, or or Pacific Islanders? Like that, yes, we will just stay silent and not take up space and not say anything. And therefore, it's okay to behave in this way when obviously it is super not. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's been a common theme that we've been hearing a lot recently, that Asian hate crimes or potential hate crimes often go unreported for that kind of reason. We also want to talk about how members of the dance community are harnessing the energy around this movement and taking concrete action to support Asian artists. And the clear leaders in this effort in the dance world are Phil Chan and Georgina Peskogan of Final Bow for Yellow Face. So Dance Magazine just published a piece outlining Final Bow's plans to improve Asian representation in dance and to support Asian creatives who are working in and around the dance world. These are plans that were actually already in motion before the attacks, but have now been accelerated to, again, kind of harness the energy around this movement right now. Yeah, and if anyone is going to get this done, it is definitely Phil and Gina. Mm -hmm. So just kind of breaking down what these accelerated plans entail. Uh, For starters, they're asking all ballet companies to commit to hiring an Asian choreographer for a main stage production by 2025, uh, prioritizing Asian women when possible so that instead of just using Asian set dressing or Asian settings, there are Asian creatives telling stories from their perspective in their voices. In the month of May, which as you may or may not know, is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month here in the U.S. Final Bow for Yellowface will be turning its Instagram page into essentially a virtual choreographic festival. Uh, Every day of the month, they will be featuring a different Asian choreographer with footage of their work and interview with the choreographer. Basically, uh, if there are any ballet companies out there wondering, well, I don't know any Asian choreographers, Mm -hmm. here you go. Here they are. Yeah. Just take a quick scroll. And then kind of the biggest long-term project that they are working on is uh, essentially launching a choreographic incubator to produce brand new ballets with entirely Asian creative teams from the choreography to the scores to the costumes to lighting design. Um, And they are currently working on building a database of Asian creatives and raising funds to commission these works. Um, It's been really fun the past few days. They had a virtual tea house on Sunday and have kind of opened up the Instagram page to be like, hey, introduce yourself and seeing Gina and Phil reacting to like, there are so many of you, we can't wait to meet all of you. And it's <laughs> it's just been really cool to see this energy around this and to imagine what kind of probably really incredible fun work we're going to get to see coming out of this, like, frankly, god awful moment. Yeah, yeah, they found a way to bring joy to a time that has been incredibly hard for a lot of people. Um, we've included a link to the Dance Magazine story outlining all of these initiatives in the show notes. But please also be sure to follow at Final Bow for Yellowface on Instagram for regular updates on the work the organization is doing. And we're also we're going to have Phil and Gina on the podcast soon to talk about all that work. So stay tuned. Lots more to come. <laughs> 
Also, if you can donate, they're a great place donate. to donate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll link to their website too, so you can go directly to their donation page. So in our next segment, we're going to talk about, oh gosh, here we go, <laughs> NFTs or non-fungible tokens. They are suddenly seemingly everywhere and now they have officially entered the dance universe. So last week, the performing arts company Beauty in the Streets announced that it has partnered with a blockchain platform called Engine to turn dancers' signature moves into animated NFTs, which can then be purchased for use as emotes within certain apps and video games. If there are multiple words in that last sentence that you maybe didn't understand, we hear you. We're going to do our best to explain, although we're not tech reporters. We're dance people doing our best, so <laughs> don't at us. <laughs> Be gentle. Um, but so first of all, what is an NFT exactly? Courtney, I'm going to research. <laughs> I'm going to try to do my best. I had no 24 hours ago, guys, I had no idea what an NFT was. So we are on this journey together. <laughs> all right. So NFT stands for non-fungible token. Think of an NFT as a digital certificate of authenticity for one-of-a-kind digital files. Uh, you might be familiar with the idea of provenance in the visual art world, uh, the history of ownership of a work of art that helps certify that it is what a collector or seller or broker says it is. NFTs do the same thing, but for digital items like GIFs, videos, JPEGs, MP3s, or even text files, it's essentially a new way to monetize intellectual property that lives on the internet. Artists can mint a new NFT, creating a new token that will forever be attached to that piece of content. And thanks to blockchain, each NFT has a built-in transparent transaction and pricing history, verifying its authenticity and its original creator. And anytime that piece of unique content is resold, a built-in commission fee kicks back a percentage to the original artist. So you obviously can't and shouldn't do that with like copyrighted material. But where this gets interesting is the idea of taking, say, a GIF or a video or a piece of movement and making it into an NFT. Mm -hmm. There are some like initial startup costs issues, which is like one of the weird things with NFTs. You like have to purchase an amount of cryptocurrency and then it actually costs like a decent amount of money just to generate an NFT because it's like a whole bunch of computers doing really complex mathematics in order to make that happen. Potentially a barrier to entry right now for dancers looking to get in on this. So this announcement that this particular uh, group is working with another particular blockchain group to create dance-based emotes is fascinating. Let's talk a little about what an emote is too, just quickly in case people don't know. So the form that these dance move NFTs are taking, emotes are, are basically like animated emojis that you can use in video games or on certain apps. And you might have heard of them in the context of Fortnite, which allows you to buy all kinds of like dance move emotes to like express yourself on the battlefield. And they've gotten in some trouble for ripping off some dancers moves without crediting those dancers. That's the context in which most of us know about emotes. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think also that's Part of what makes this so interesting is that mm -hmm. those conversations about emotes in Fortnite, Fortnite taking dance moves that existed in the real world without crediting or paying the creators, the lawsuits that ensued, we talked a lot about how copyright law hasn't really caught up to that. NFTs are essentially making it so that dancers can just kind of slide on in there and monetize mm -hmm. their moves themselves. Right. This is a way for them to market their own intellectual property directly to existing fan bases who might be into dance already. Um, it's interesting, too, because the whole idea of like making a signature move into an NFT, 
that seems like it's geared toward the breaking community, like mm-hmm. there are opportunities for that here. And I think, in fact, the first NFT is a breaking move. It's from the founder of Beauty in the Streets, uh, Snap Boogie, and it's called Speedy Walkovers, which it's basically like a rapid string of one-handed walkovers in place. It's actually really cool. It's Go look really at the cool. story that we've linked. <laughs> and I, it sounds like those who purchase this particular NFT can perform, quote unquote, the move in a specific 3D game called Alterverse. So... Right now, the reach of these NFTs, I guess, is relatively limited. But if this does become something that is large enough, people are willing to overcome those barriers to entry, those initial costs. I don't know. Could it be a real way for dancers to generate some real income? Or is it more of a flash in the pan trend? I don't know. I think our habit with a lot of things like cryptocurrency and even just online trends is to say, oh, it's just a fad. It's a bubble. You know, it'll go Mm -hmm. away. But I think we all said that about TikTok when it first started up. And now it's a part of my daily actual job. (laughs) And so I think I wouldn't be so I wouldn't be quick to write this off. I think we've seen Bitcoin cryptocurrency. We all wrote that off when it first started. And now there are people making millions off of it. So I think I'm excited about the room for growth. Yeah, and I think also, like, video games is a huge business right now. Huge. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, even, I mean, and even just the idea of there being a digital market for human movement, like, that is fascinating. Like, paging Sydney Sky better. We gotta, we gotta figure this out, you know? Just doing research for this, like, my, I kept, like, wanting to go over to my email and being like, hey, Sydney, what do you think? Like, I just, like, I'm so curious. We gotta have Sydney on the podcast too soon. All right. So our last segment is not about a single news item, but rather a group of stories that together offered sort of a snapshot of this weird state of live dance performance in New York City right now. So just for context, in a regular year, at this point, the city would be an absolute hive of dance activity. Like we usually joke us nerdy dance people about like March Madness on the dance (laughs) performance calendar. And then, of course, at this time last year, we'd just begun a complete shutdown, the two extremes. But right now, just in this past week, we've started seeing like fits and starts of live dance activity, this sort of like two steps forward, one step back kind of progress. So one of the most significant pieces of news for dancers itching to get back into the studio is that indoor fitness classes in New York City are starting to be allowed to resume. This comes shortly after a group of fitness studios sued Mayor Bill de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo for the right to reopen. And now we're starting to see studios being allowed to get inspections from the city so that they're able to reopen and they can then start rolling out the schedules for restarting their programs. Of course, fitness classes will be capped at 33% capacity and patrons will be required to wear face coverings, as has, I think, just become the norm in our daily lives. But it is getting dancers back into the studio, slowly but surely. Yeah, and it's definitely a process. Uh, Steps on Broadway Mm -hmm. put out a statement the same day that this was announced, uh, essentially saying like, okay, so we have the go ahead, like theoretically, we can go ahead as of it was Monday this past week. Uh, But like first, they had to get an inspection on the books. They wanted to make sure that their HVAC systems and air ventilation systems were all up to snuff. All of these things that essentially boil down to, yes, we have to go ahead, but we're not rushing into this. We're going to take our time, do it right. Not just following the letter of the law, but like making sure that everyone feels safe and feels comfortable coming back. Yeah, this is no on-off switch. There's no immediate return to an old normal. And then indoor performances, as we said last week, made a sort of unexpectedly early return at the Guggenheim, where Caleb Teicher so seemingly went off without a hitch over the weekend. It sounds like it was kind of fantastic. But then also at the Park Avenue Armory, where the story is a little bit different. 
Yeah, so uh, yesterday when you're hearing this, so Wednesday, Bill T. Jones... Uh, Arnie Zane Company, as we had announced, was going to be performing afterwardness at the Park Avenue Armory to very small audience capacity. Uh, it was a sold-out show. Everyone was going to be required to have rapid tests when they got there, socially distanced, all the things. Uh, this had to be called off at the end of last week and indefinitely postponed after, I believe, according to the New York Times, three members of the company uh, tested positive for covid so that has essentially been indefinitely postponed. I also just saw not long before we started recording, uh, they are still going forward with um, another indoor performance at the Armory that is going to be kicking off at the beginning of April, I believe. The David Burns, Stephen Hoggett collab. That's, yeah, April 9th. Yeah. So I think the the vibe is very much... I think they are confident in their safety measures. And I think that the fact that they so quickly canceled when they had that test like shows like, yes, they're taking this seriously and taking precautions. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does seem like this will probably be a fairly common occurrence, like a leap forward, a scaling back, mm -hmm. another leap forward as outbreaks happen and are contained. I mean, until most of the population is vaccinated, like it's just sort of the nature of the game. Yeah, I mean, even the same day that Caleb Teicher and co inaugurated the first in-person return of the Guggenheim's works in process, the same day they were scheduled to perform through New York Pops Up and it was canceled because new protocols had been established. Yeah. So then there were two stories. There's one in Dense Magazine. There's one in The Times talking about how even though there's still all these hurdles when it comes to indoor dance, outdoor performance or plans for outdoor performance are through the roof um, as warmer weather is beginning to return to New York City. Of course, it isn't, this isn't just happening in New York City. It's happening all over. But there is a lot of it happening in New York from smaller scale performances to the 10 outdoor venues that Lincoln Center is creating on its campus. Outside is where audiences seem to feel most comfortable and artists are finding all kinds of inspiration in outdoor settings as well. I mean, we're about to hear Pam Taji talk about how that's such a part of life at the pillow. Mm -hmm. It's true in New York City, too. I mean, there's this almost celebratory feel to outside performance, even in non-pandemic times. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember one of my most exciting performances was when I was like 11, seeing Merce Cunningham at Wolf Trap in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's oh, something about outdoor spaces that just... It's a different experience, and it's a really amazing one. Even when you're being bitten to death by mosquitoes in the middle of summer in Washington, D.C., I still, it was one of the performances that's most lodged in my memory, and I was like 11. Yeah, your mosquito bites are badges of honor. <laughs> or a few summers ago in uh, Madison Square Park in Manhattan, which was kind of close to where our office used to be, uh, I used to take walks during lunchtime. I remember one time just coming across uh, Netta Yerushalmi's Dancers. There was this whole like commissioning series where there was like art happening and rehearsals happening in the park. And I like came across them doing Netta's moves, which I cannot categorize to save my life. <laughs> and it was just such a delightful surprise. And yeah, I feel like yeah. I feel like stuff like that is very much the spirit of a New York City spring and summer. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think as long as everyone is being smart and being cognizant and audiences are being respectful, like I think this presages really good things. Yeah, the idea of everybody walking around New York and stumbling across dance performances this summer. Oh, that's a lovely thought to hold on to. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will have our interview with Pamela Taji about what's going on at Jacob's Pillow. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back, dance friends. I'm here now with Pamela Tadji, who's the executive and artistic director of Jacob's Pillow. Hi, Pam. How are you? Hi, fine, thanks. Great to be here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Jacob's Pillow has been through a lot over the past year, and it has big, innovative plans for the future that I want to talk about. But before we get into all of that, would you mind telling our listeners a little about yourself and about your relationship with dance and the dance world? Absolutely. Uh, so I, I would say my first encounter was in fourth grade. I, I amazingly up my street in Bethesda, Maryland. There was a, a former dancer from the Royal Ballet in England who had a studio attached to her house. So I began to study ballet then. Um, and dance became a, a, a lifelong love from there on. I always studied dance, uh, but I was a, originally a theater artist. So I really studied dance as a means to uh, train my total self in terms of the work that I do or did at that time and um, took class all the way through college, post-college. Um, my, my first uh, career aim was to be an actor and I swiftly abandoned that probably two years in just because I couldn't wait for other people to determine when I worked. Mm -hmm. And I had too much I wanted to do in this life and I didn't have a big enough ego to self-produce and, and have people discover me. So I, I began my work in support of artists and in support of marrying artists to audiences. And that career began uh, in theater at Long Wharf Theater for 10 years. Then I was the director of the Center for the Arts at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. And there was a very strong uh, dance um, piece of that job where I really, over time, learned that that this was my love. This uh, this form that uh, transcended language, that opened my eyes. And when the job at Jacob's Pillow opened up and I was approached about it, I thought, my God, to be able to go deeply into this form that I had grown to love so much uh, was just a dream. So uh, I will I'll have my fifth anniversary in April. I can't believe it. And so that's that's a little bit about my path. Well, congratulations, five years. Um, I'm sorry to begin the Jacob's Pillow part of our conversation on this tragic note, but I but I want to start by addressing the fire that destroyed the Pillows Doris Duke Theater in November, because that was the kind of loss that a lot of us in the dance world felt really viscerally. There was this like outpouring of, of grief when that happened. Can you talk about what actually happened, first of all, and then how the pillow responded in the immediate aftermath? So, yes, I mean, you don't ever think in life uh, that you're going to go through something like this. And of course, in my uh, years at the pillow, uh, you, you the, the presence of wood and its fragility uh, is always there. Uh, but on, on um, November 17th, um, a, a fire began uh, early in the morning, and uh, within just a few hours, the, uh, the building was destroyed. Uh, the fire inspector's report came out um, a few weeks ago and really uh, said that there was no cause that they could determine, uh, that the devastation was so great that they couldn't put their finger on what happened. Um, and, and so... Uh, the idea that it is a mystery. We have thoughts about, you know, what 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 could have happened. You know, there there was a, a series of events that led this to happen and happen fast. And the cause, the 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 reason for the fire, we just will never know. And there's there's a great sorrow in that because you want to explain it, you want to understand it, and and meanwhile, 
all you have is that um, that emptiness. And so, as an organization, you know, of course, what uh, we put in place immediately was a, a double, triple check of all of our systems, so that we ascertain that all of what we have is being taken care of as, as best as we can within what we can control. Uh, we're having an entire independent risk assessment done of all systems uh, related to health and safety at the pillow. But, but most of all, so that's the, that's the physical story. Uh, the emotional story is, um, I, think, I think the idea that there had, we experienced this in, at a time of such loss that so many people were going through such loss. It, it became almost like the physical manifestation about, of what everyone was feeling. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, I, I think it, that's why it hit particularly hard. Um, but the minute, you know, anyone expressed that grief, everyone said right away, oh my God, thank God an ember didn't go into the new Perla studio or the Ted Sean theater or the Ruth St. Dennis, which is just adjacent. It's miraculous that the wind was in our favor. We thank our volunteer firefighters for the work that they did to, to put out the fire and contain it. Uh, so, and most importantly, there was no human life lost. Mm -hmm. And people, um, you know, in, in, um, when you test your mission as an organization, one of the key questions is, well, what would people feel if something happened? If you went away, what would the consequences be? We got a sense of what it would mean mm -hmm. because of how people expressed why that, that theater mattered to them. It, it, it has been, uh, we've been going through the stages of grief for sure. Um, but uh, we really felt after it was just happened right before the holidays. So we, we made a plan right before the holidays to um, have a researcher conduct a series of listening sessions. And the questions we asked people, and those people were artists who were associated with the history of the Duke, artists who've never performed in the Duke, uh, people who've built venues within the past 10 years, technicians who've worked in the, in the space for years, including some of the technicians that were there at the founding of the Doris Duke Theater. Uh, we interviewed audience members, community members, and we asked, what about that space? You know, did you love, did, did, should we retain? Uh, what, what are maybe things, if, if we were to have made improvements in that space, would you have liked to have seen? And then very importantly, what do we need for the 21st century? Where do you, what is a performance space that, that would, will resonate for the times we are living in, for the work that artists want to make, including uh, considerations of technological advancements? Um, and uh, we've just completed that research study and uh, we are now uh, on the next step of architect uh, selection. Uh, and it's our hope to be able to come back to the community in the fall with a sense of scope. And uh, of course, it'll be yet another campaign because we will have insurance uh, support for, um, for the loss of the building. But because we're hoping to build a space um, that is for the 21st century in, in ways, it will, it will definitely require more than what we will uh, be able to get from our insurance claim. And so um, that's quite frankly, you know, right where we are as of this minute. It's, you know, at the pillow, you have this challenge of even though the, I know the Duke was newer than, say, the Ted Sean Theater, you're dealing with something that's 
both a living performance venue and a museum. This place with so much yes. history and preserving that and protecting that requires a different type of, of work in a way. Um, but so you also have pledged you're going to renovate and upgrade the Techon. Can you yes. talk a little about the details of those plans as well? Yes, and just just imagine being us, right? You know, we're we've been working meticulously for four years to plan this renovation of the Ted Shawn Theater and raise the funds to do it, which is you know it's a, it's it's eight million dollars to do the Shawn uh, renovation alone. And we had a plan to announce it on April twentieth in New York. We had to cancel that entirely uh, because of the pandemic. And there was a moment where. We, we thought, well, maybe we can't go on with this plan and this campaign. But we soon realized as we learned more about COVID that the Ted Shawn Theater simply would not be a sustainable space in a post-COVID world without ventilation and air conditioning and air handling. So in fact, the renovation of the Shawn, um, we had no choice but to move forward with this renovation. And so we um, actually broke ground in January um, in a snow, on a snowy, blustery day. We opened up the back door that everyone who's been to the Ted Shawn Theater knows <laughs> those back doors when they opened, how glorious it is. Well, the snow was coming in and we were socially distant on the stage because we had to fit, like we had to have some physical, there's been so many virtual celebrations. We had to be, you know, physically in the same space. So the, the plan is that, um, Really, we are not touching the house area. We're only uh, uh, going to be um, addressing the stage area. The, um, the, the big uh, draw for why the Ted Shawn Theater needs to be renovated, and this, this was, um, we arrived at uh, soon after I came to the pillow, um, is that the beams that support the roof support the rigging. And those beams are old, they're from 1942. And so the stage house will be moved back, the proscenium line will move back. We will preserve those back doors. The entire back wall will be the back wall of the new theater. So for people coming into the theater, they'll feel something different, but, but they'll still see those amazing doors. Um, we will add an eco-friendly um, air conditioning and ventilation system. And I think what's interesting about this is that we won't be uh, turning the uh, Ted Shawn Theater into an insulated envelope. It will, um, it will still be a barn, but on hot days, we will have a cooling system that will pump cool air in. Uh, but we only use it on the hottest days. And it's just never going to feel like one of those theater fridges that you go into. Mm -hmm. We are also um, uh, addressing accessibility. Right now, if we had a physically disabled artist, we would have no way for them to access the stage. So the stage will now be accessible. We will have uh, dressing rooms that will be accessible. We will have, um, in terms of the house area, the one thing we are doing to the house is because we're moving the proscenium back, we're creating an orchestra pit, and we're also creating accessible seating that's down front. So in the past, our only accessible seats were in the back of the house. Now we have an option of sitting at the front of the house. Um, and so uh, some of the other things that we will be able to do is, again, a sustainability choice is add LED lighting um, that uh, we're, we're really hoping to, to move to entirely uh, LED lights over time. We'll um, have an increased stage size, so it'll be wider, deeper, and higher. And um, 
I, I think, you know, oh, and the, the other thing that's just um, for dancers who know the space well, you know that if you have to make, if you have to go from stage right to stage left, right now you have to go outside. Uh -huh. <laughs> there's, uh, there's the crossover is outside and we cover it with a tarp, but you're basically, um, you know, uh, needing to contend with the elements in the middle of your, your performance. Sort of a, a Jacob's pillow, rite of passage. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so um people will now be able to um you know have a have a have a crossover space um via the basement so you know i i think we're we're um we're headed into really um it, it's just it's it's really long overdue that we that we do this and we've finally you know been able to uh raise the money thanks to some extraordinarily generous donors and just we're we're so grateful so exciting to see all this forward-looking work underway. Let's let's talk a little about this summer because you just made a major announcement that the festival will be coming back this summer in a hybrid version with some outdoor performances that will allow some dancers and audience members to be back on the on the Pillow campus, which is such a huge it's such mm -hmm. a huge thing. Can you talk yes. a bit about both the why and the how of this hybrid approach to the summer festival? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so I would say that, um, first of all, uh, last summer when we had to cancel the festival, we, um, just like so many of our colleagues around the country, made a, a pivot to to uh, a virtual festival, but we we didn't we we didn't do it small. We we did uh, thirty eight events over eight weeks. Only twenty percent of them were pre existing productions. We ended up reaching uh, thousands of audiences, as many of our colleagues have experienced. To us, the remarkable statistic is eighty percent of those people were new to Jacob's Pillow. So. You know, we are known around the world, but because of our remote location, we're, we're very difficult to figure out how to get to. So um, it, it became imperative to us that this summer, uh, especially with the, um, we, we will, you know, I'll talk a little bit about how we're thinking about an outdoor socially distant festival, but the only way to do this is to massively reduce capacity. So the idea of the hybrid festival is to actually be able to uh, reach audiences who either will not be able to get a ticket because um, we only have a limited amount available this summer, or, you know, uh, I, there are a number of people who come to Jacob's pillow, you know, they come maybe one or two times during the summer and they say, Oh my God, if I could see everything, you know, that happens at Jacob's pillow and see it online, you know, what a, how exciting would that be? So so we are um, we're we're really using this summer as as uh, Jacob's Pillow has been pretty much set up in the same format um, every year. I inherited a, an absolutely beautifully well oiled machine in terms of performance presentation, but this summer we will um, we will break that in 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 important ways. We're, we're talking a lot in this country about systems and uh, how we have to evaluate our, our systems of oppression, our, our, our hierarchies, and, and by, by um, really uh, starting fresh with what, what work can we present outdoors, who, whose voices should be represented right now on our stages. I made the decision uh, uh, actually over a year ago to bring on a, a guest curator uh, to 
expand our curatorial team with the idea that I'm thinking about the hierarchy of a single decision maker in a, in um, a major institution like Jacob's Pillow. Um, I, I love the part of my job about at Wesleyan that was about programming collaboratively with faculty and with students sometime. So I'm very intrigued by um, thinking about uh, gatekeeping. And so um, I made the decision to bring a guest curator on, was in the middle of the search when COVID hit, basically said, actually, I want to have a system where I have two associate curators. So we um, brought on two associate curators to plan both the Pillow Lab and this summer's festival. They are Ali Rosa Salas and Melanie George. And so when we announced the artists in this festival, we are carefully looking at, um, at, at who, whose voices we're centering at this time. Uh, in terms of the the physical, um, the how of this is that the core programming will happen on the inside out stage. Um, it is it is perfectly set up. We feel so blessed that that um, we have uh, this amphitheater type seating with a stage, the backdrop of which are the Berkshire Hills, and it's just it's magnificent. And so we will be having uh, nine weeks of uh, companies coming to perform. Uh, uh, one one company each week, and then um, we'll also have a series of site-based works that will take place in pop-up ways around the campus. A different one every week, every weekend, and um, some of these are the combination of residencies we've been having in the Pillow Lab. Others are works that are being developed specifically for Jacob's Pillow for the site of Jacob's Pillow. And uh, th this has been a thrilling, uh, you know, journey for our curators and me to have a conversation about artists about what do they want to make right now, if we are using natural stages of, at the pillow as opposed to uh, the structures. What what do they want to make? Um, so some, in some cases, it's an adapt adaptations of existing works, and in others, it's it's um, you know works that will be created specifically for the pillow. And um, it's we we call it a multi-platform festival because um, in addition to the uh, in person, we will have an online. Uh, festival that will parallel the in-person festival. So they'll happen at the same time so that we're benefiting from all of the, uh, you know, contextualization, marketing, you know, that, that, um, that we'll, be, we'll be bringing audiences to the campus, we'll also be bringing them to our digital platform. And um, we, we think this is vital. What we learned last summer uh, was just about accessibility. Everyone has talked about this. That, that we are accessing people who might not ever be able to come to Jacob's Pillow, either for geographic uh, barriers or economic barriers or physical barriers, any, any number of um, barriers that, that, that we have been contending with for, for our entire existence, uh, you know, um, we are now able to reach people. And so uh, alongside that, I guess I should also talk about how we're doing this in the middle of COVID, mm -hmm. and that is under rigorous um, attention uh, from from medical advisors. You know, we will be socially distant with masks, uh, with health forms completed before you arrive outdoors, and we're doing everything we can to to get it right. Mm -hmm. And when you, you know, I feel like when we're thinking about places where dance can happen in a COVID-safe way, I know for me and a lot of my colleagues, the pillow is the place that comes immediately to mind, just these incredible outdoor yeah. spaces and spaces that have been inspiring artists for so many years, the idea that then this is a time to build on that 
is is kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk specifically about anti-racism work at the Pillow because I know that that's mm-hmm. been a priority of yours for a while. Um, and the murder of George Floyd last spring and then the protests that followed seem to sort of shake a lot of dance organizations awake. Um, but can you talk about how the Pillow's anti-racism work has evolved or maybe accelerated over the past months or how it's been a continuation? Sure. So um, I would say this is work that we've been doing for four years. We have a, um, a, a wonderful partner in Gwendolyn Van Sant at a company called Multicultural Bridge in Lee, Massachusetts. And um, we started with staff training that led to intern all seasonal staff trainings, uh, board trainings, uh, to really, with the understanding that unless you understand your own implicit biases, you really can't um, begin to enter into new ways of thinking around uh, becoming an anti-racist organization or an inclusive organization. So uh, we we had um, we had that history. We had a we, we've had sort of two accelerating moments. I would say the first accelerating moment was in 2019 when we had a a racist incident at our gala. And uh, we made the decision to go public uh, with what happened so that we were just saying to our community, what are we going to do to create spaces of belonging so that these sorts of events don't happen? So, so that was one accelerating moment. And then, then of course, uh, all, of, all of us really felt like uh, whatever we're doing, we're not doing enough. Um, you know, I think it was Mark Bamuti-Joseph, the great... Um, choreographer, uh, thinker, who's now at the Kennedy Center, uh, talked about, um, you know, we, we can't afford to be patient. And I think all of us felt that, that, that maybe we have tried to methodically, you know, change our practices, change our behaviors. But in fact, what we need is, is some, some radical change in our thinking, uh, in order to really, uh, break down systems of, uh, of oppression. And so um, what we had uh, sort of amazingly, and I, I just have to highly recommend it, right before COVID hit, end of February, last weekend in February, the entire staff of Jacob's Pillow went through PSAB training. And PSAB is the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. It's an anti-racism training that takes two days. It's very intensive. and our staff was just so committed to, to going the next step uh, and then COVID hit. And then we had the layoffs uh, that ensued. So not only did we build this desire to move forward and this trust as a, as a staff community, but then the trust was broken by us having to make the decision about laying people off. So we felt like the first group to think about how we might uh, begin to implement uh, greater changes at Jacob's Pillow would be to focus in on our staff, the remaining staff, and have uh, them work uh, carefully. So in July and August, we met every other week with our trainer, uh, Gwendolyn Van Sant. At the same time, one of the the actions that I um, I felt we needed to to take was we we simply don't have the perspective in our board and in our staff to understand uh, where 
where are those systems that need to be altered and, and changed? So I um, took a page from universities that conduct external reviews of departments every so often to get outsiders to, to give feedback. So we actually um, hired a facilitator to uh, uh, create a, a, an external review uh, so that we can see ourselves through their lens. And this is a BIPOC group of uh, artists and cultural practitioners. Uh, and I would say that, uh, you know, in particular, in terms of the artists, we, we do have a, a really rich history of featuring artists um, from many cultures internationally and, and nationally. Uh, and, um, and so I, I, I know that, that, as I said before, this summer's festival will be centering uh, BIPOC artists and uh, their work, in particular um, forms that maybe haven't been presented at Jacob's Pillow before. We, we also need to grapple with our history. All, of, all, of, uh, all legacy institutions have to look at and, and um, understand their complex histories in relationship to issues such as cultural appropriation. We began to discuss that in 2019 um, around an exhibition that we actually called Dance We Must um, at Blake's Barn that, that came out of an exhibition that was at Williams College. And, um, and I think we have to have more conversations to, to, uh, to understand our complex history as well as think of um, think of the other histories that that uh, emanate from the land on which we dance um in particular our indigenous uh past and um we have had uh some extraordinary uh uh interactions with our local elders uh who are actually working with us to shape some of the summer's uh programming as well as um emily johnson uh had a, a pillow lab in the fall and uh, is is also uh, looking at our land and helping us understand that 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 history. So, I think um, I think I understand that we have so much work to do. There are so many people who for whom Jacob's Pillow is not a place where they feel like they belong, and uh, and and it it's it's our job to 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 figure this out in in the most um, uh, thoughtful. Uh, but um, but but we can't take too long, you know. As as Bamuti says, you know, we we can't be patient. Mm -hmm. I'm going to conclude with another huge question after a series of huge questions. <laughs> um, what makes you hopeful about the future of dance right now, both at the Pillow and and more broadly? I think that there's something about. Um, this period of isolation, which has caused all of us to perhaps associate with our bodies more than ever, you know, because we're all we've got uh, in many ways. And in that way, I think that people are responding so uh, viscerally to, to movement, to dance. And this explosion of content that has been created for the digital sphere uh, is and it's you know how the innovation that's come from it gives me great hope the ubiquity of dance on platforms like tiktok you know has uh just you know uh, also made you feel that dance has been one of those um those great uh, the great um hopes of this period of time uh 
the, the work that, that artists are thinking about making right now, where they want to make it, what conditions they need to make it, I think are going to shift greatly. And I think a place like Jacob's Pillow has got to be there for those artists when we come, you know, when we are able to uh, come back to more robust um, activities again. Uh, I, I think the, the energy and the, the creativity is there. Um, I, I, the devastation is huge though, mm -hmm. Margaret, as mm -hmm. you know, it's just going to take years, I think, for our field to recover from uh from this uh this devastation and we're going to lose a, a lot of company structures are just not going to make it i i don't think but i i'm i'm really uh, heartened by the appetite for dance and the fact that that dance makers have not stopped they have kept they've kept on they have persevered and uh and and i i also you know i i wouldn't be in I wouldn't do this work as my life's work if I didn't believe in the healing power of dance. And we need that community building power of dance now more than ever to, to really address some of the deep divisions in this country. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I look forward to, to doing all I can to partner with my colleagues around the country to make those, those uh, experiences possible for communities who need us right now and for artists who who need means who need the uh scaffolding to to be able to realize their dreams pam thank you so much for i mean i i'm trying to remember i did an interview and i'm trying to remember who it was with i think it was tyler angle talking about tyler peck and saying oh i love partnering her because you don't you barely even have to partner her she just goes and that's how i felt during this interview it's <laughs> Barely even had to ask, ask questions. It was, <laughs> Thank you. It was kind of wonderful. Um, where can listeners go to find out more about the Pillow and about the Summers Festival? Okay, so we will be announcing the full schedule and the artists in April. Um, and so go to our website, which is um, www.jacobspillow.org. We also are on Instagram and Facebook. And um, and I think to, you know, those are the best places to follow us because we put all of our announcements there. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I, I do want to just say that we have this wonderful uh, series um, called Inside the Pillow Lab. It's a series of documentaries we've been making about work being made in our bubble residencies. Uh, we started with Brian Brooks, um, Shamel Pitts, Emily Johnson, Michelle Dorrance, Kyle Abraham. So they're wonderful. Um, uh, those, that docu-series is on YouTube, but we have new ones premiering throughout the spring, thanks to the Mellon Foundation, who really realized this was a way to get direct support to artists right now, is to fund bubble residencies, and we're so grateful to them. So, so that's another, that's a way to stay engaged um, this spring until the summer is, is through the Inside the Pillow Lab. And we'll include all of the relevant links in our episode description so people can find those easily as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this, Margaret. It's so important to me that people know, uh, you know, what we're working on at Jacob's Pillow. We need, we need all the partners we can get right now. So um, thanks for helping us spread the word. Oh, thank you. I think we're all so eager and so excited to see the pillow back. And not that it ever went away, but just that the sense of resilience that it's continued through even the most challenging year in, in its history. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Pam. 
The idea of making a pilgrimage to the pillow for a performance this summer, it's the best kind of daydream in that it's one that might actually be able to come true, or at the very least a virtual pilgrimage for sure. Um, As we mentioned, we've included all the relevant links in the episode notes, but just for reference, the pillow handle is at Jacob's Pillow on both Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to give them a follow. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.